As you all who have been here the last three weeks, you see that I'm slowing down a little bit, taking more time in some aspects of this text, and then also making some application as much as possible for the sake of our maturity and our joy and our hope. Because, I mean, think about that for a second. When, when you think about obedience, <coughs> you think about obedience, I don't know about you, but for me, the innate response to obedience in my flesh is always negative. Well, if I have to obey something, I don't get to have fun. If I have to obey something, I don't get to do what I really want to do. If I don't get to obey something, even if it's good and profitable and I enjoy it, somebody's making me do it. Somebody's telling me to do something. So there's always this, there's always this little war going on when it comes to obedience. Sometimes we find that when we think of obedience, we, it, it becomes self-deprecating. Well, I'm just not good enough. I'm just not able, whatever. I'm just a worm. And while that may be true theologically and anthropologically in the context of righteousness, because we are indeed purchased by the blood of Christ, these things are no longer our moniker. In other words, we can't call ourselves these things. We are the saints. We are the beloved of God. We are the, we are the adopted children. We're holy. We are set apart. We are sanctified. We are righteous. And we know that these things are not in and of ourselves, that we aren't being transformed in some weird way, that our lives are becoming more and more righteous, but that we are forever declared righteous in the finished work of Jesus Christ. That one day then in glorification, a new work will take place that we are recreated to be exactly as Christ is. Completely. And we don't spend enough time with that. We don't spend enough time with that at all. We think about, oh, we're going to be glorified, I won't have arthritis. And we glorified, I won't have anxiety. I'll be glorified, I won't be hungry. I'll be glorified, I won't be frustrated. I'll be glorified, I won't be sinning. No, when you're glorified, you'll be sinless. Sinless in our body, sinless in our intentions, sinless in our affections, sinless in our, in our thoughts, in our words, in our deeds. Sinless. Let's take it and put it in the positive. We will be righteous. As Christ is righteous. We will be holy as He is holy. We will reveal Him, which is glory, perfectly. And then there is no measure of getting close to any of that in this life. No matter how good we grow. No matter how well we grow. It's just no measure. So when we dictate to our conscience the street beatings of not being good enough, and then we placate to that idea, we walk around in a state of, dr of, of dreading obedience. Let me say it a little clearer. We beat ourselves up <laughs> because we know that we don't measure up not only do we deny the proclamation of the doctrine of sovereign grace, but we bemoan our own lives that God has given us to live joyfully. And we do so at the detriment of God's promises and love in our lives, and we are miserable, and we cannot find joy, and we, will not find, we cannot find intimacy in any good relationship whatsoever because we can't find intimacy and joy in a relationship with our Father. We surely aren't going to be able to do it with ourselves, and if we can't do it with ourselves, we cannot do it with others. That's why you hear me poke fun at the Puritans. And I'm not going to stand here and tell you that God hasn't used some of that writing to really just take my breath away. Especially the way they prayed. But they prayed that way because that's all they ever did. They prayed that way because that's all they ever knew. 
And there comes a point where we have to understand that obedience to God has to get out of the inflection stage and get out and into the projection stage. We've got to get away from always. We have to be in our minds. We have to answer these things. We have to think, but we don't think all the time about thinking. You remember those jokes? Yeah, they're funny, but I'm being serious. We don't think all the time about our our posture before the Father, except in the lens and through the economy of grace, that the blood of Christ is the only, the blood of Christ is the only currency that establishes us entrance into righteousness. And it's been paid. We need to get into the place where we are so secure and so fulfilled and so assured of the word of God and our standing before him because of the work of Jesus that we can live out love in a way that does not destroy our own lives nor violate our boundaries, but at the same time establishes a presence in the world that people are amazed with. God does not regenerate people through observation of someone else's life. God does not declare the gospel, uh, you know, ambiguously. The gospel, by definition, is a story, a good report, actually literally meaning good report from God that is explicitly told. And you'll never get it all. It would take you five to six hours to iterate every established teaching in the New Testament, the Old Testament, and the illusions of everything in the prophecies. It would take you five or six hours of constant straight talking at my speed to establish the entirety of the gospel, and you'd miss half of it. So every time we pronounce and we proclaim a gospel truth, it is the gospel. There's no such thing as a partial gospel. It's the gospel when it illustrates Christ. You don't have to have a a, a whole handful of stuff. Oh, I forgot this one thing. Nope, I didn't scare the gospel. Yes, you did. If you proclaim the goodness of Christ, if you proclaim the love of God in Christ, if you proclaim the person of Christ in any part or whole, you are, prepared, or you are proclaiming the gospel. So when we come to these things and we start to think about them, we need to understand that proclaiming the gospel is about what we say. So it's important to know what we know. It's important to study. But to what end? See, evangelicalism would tell you that the entire purpose of the Christian is to just propagate the gospel and purvey the person of Christ to the nations, to the end of everything, so that every Charlotte's web would scream, Jesus! I mean, you know, it would just be out there. But that's not what we see. God will send his people, and he sends... Let me make a statistic up. 99% of his gospel... (laughs) Proclamation is done in personal relationships. So the greatest examples of historical evangelism with these masses of people coming to, come, coming to faith are insignificant in the whole of evangelism in the whole of human history. Because God is doing more in the invisible, in the small, in the unintelligent, in the not professional realm of his world than he will ever do with the people standing on stages, standing on the platforms, preaching to the masses. This is not first century apostolic proclamation. This is living the word of God out in absolute trust and rest, trusting that God will, in his time, put us into the place where we can share the gospel in his timing. How many times have you been made to feel guilty because you're not evangelistic enough? That is not of God. God does call some people to the calling of like, you know what, I'm going to make it. I mean, as a pastor, I evangelize more than I teach. More than I preach, more than I study, more than I pray. Daily. All the time, no matter who I'm talking to, no matter what the context, there's always, and, I, and I'm, I'm just used to it now, it's just natural. But you're not going to see a string of people lining up outside the door, yeah, we all got saved last week under James, I mean, just, there's no such thing. 
And the only way that that actually becomes visible is when we then press people into doing something that the Bible doesn't prescribe in order for them to be certain or to display or, as you've all heard before, I remember as a kid going to a tent revival one time, if you don't stand for Jesus right now, you're going, you know. I mean, everybody stands up. Little cats over in the corner standing up, squirrels coming out of their nests at night standing up. We've done a number. But yet we are called to obedience. We're called to do some things. And I'll go ahead and give you the, the reality of the last like 19 points of the sermon. The obedience that God is calling us to is the obedience of loving our neighbor. Like I said a couple of weeks ago when I actually preached a sermon by that title, Who is Our Neighbor? Just because someone doesn't believe the gospel or believes the gospel wrongly or is unconverted doesn't mean, they might mean that they're not our sibling. You might not be my brother. This is how I said it. You might not be my brother, but you're still my neighbor. And I still have a divine obligation to love you. Actively, not in my heart, by keeping it real to tell you you're going to hell because of the way you think. That is not prescribed in Scripture. I never forget the first time I heard, I'm not even going to put labels anymore because I'm really getting pushback on this, but the first time I heard someone from a particular Protestant persuasion, I was a junior in high school, and I heard this person stand in the pulpit and for 30 to 40 minutes give every example of who wasn't in the faith and why about the heathen and the pagan and the ones that wore flip-flops or the one that wore hats or, or the ones that wore, you know, let me see what else I can pick out here. You know, the ones that did not come early or the ones that drank coffee or, or the ones that <coughs> watched TV or had a picture of their grandma on the wall and, you know, all these different things. And, and I'm sitting here thinking, you know, what is this? And nothing's changed because it's always easier for us to find somebody to hate and to boil them down to being a problem, to get a common enemy that really they're not an enemy at all, but an object of affection by our Father, and we should love them as a neighbor. That's what we do. And that type of thing, every example that I've given this morning, it drives us further and further away from the gospel of grace. And it drives us further into what we would call legalism, but we don't see it like that anymore because it's not about following precepts and laws for salvation, but it still drives us to a form of new law. And so here this morning, let's read the first two verses of chapter, of chapter 1 of First Peter. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. So we've talked about all of these things. We've looked at the life of Peter. We've seen what it means to be an apostle. We've seen what it means to be a messenger, that these people and their authority is, is nothing but a mouthpiece for the one who is authoritative, who has the authority. And that their role in leadership is to serve for the sake of the gospel, not be in charge. And then we've looked and seen what the cost of salvation is in the human realm of that day. These people who were exiled, who lost everything. And we see that the reason that is, is because God had ordained it. We talked about those things. Then we talked about election, election, electing love, the foreknowledge of God, the sovereignty of God as a resting place in the midst of great suffering. And then last week we talked about the sanctification of the Spirit, about what it means to be holy, about what it means to be set apart. And today we're going to talk about obedience to Christ. Just like that. Very simple. The Spirit sets the elect apart for obedience to Christ. Okay? So that's the first thing I want you to see today. Why do we exist as Christians 
for obedience to Christ. What does Christ tell us? Go make disciples, love one another, and everything else that the New Testament letters show the New Testament church with specific context, with very narrow context, with wide and broad context, with theological oversight throughout the millennia. Jesus boils it down into these two things, to love the Lord your God with all that you have, love your neighbor as you love yourself. And you find anything that's taught in the New Testament, it will always go to that second one of equal importance. Why? Because when we focus on loving our neighbor as we love ourselves, you know, that's what it means, right? We are literally loving God actively in that time. I want you to get this, I want to get this across to you right now, beloved. There is no sense philosophically, psychologically, theologically, historically, no sense whatsoever that love has anything to do with our enmeshment, affection, infatuation, or feelings to another person. It is not love. Love is a willful choice to do something for the, for the joy or the blessing of another person, whether you like it or not. That is love. And the cool thing is you can test to see if it's love and if it's motivated by a right heart, by that which you do, actually gives you joy. Because our joy comes from loving someone by choice. Yes, there are boundaries. Yes, there are things. There are. I'm not saying this just this carte blanche because someone who is entitled to our love is surely not someone that we can love very well. So you might say, well, what is, the, what is the very narrow sense in which we can love? What's the minimum we can do to love someone? You can pray for them. That's an active attitude of service. Sometimes we can love them by just being quiet, not, not stepping in it. <laughs> Sometimes we can love them by just encouraging them and listening. Being present, listening, just listening. I have a terrible, not as bad, but it's still a terrible habit of when I hear a problem, I'm going to fix it. I'm going to fix it, I'm going to fix it, I'm going to fix it, I'm going to fix it. So now I'm learning after 28 years of marriage. This February, Robin and I have been together for 29 years. Y'all are coming up close on that number too. You know, I'm learning to ask, are you just sharing that or you need me to fix it? You need my thoughts? And nine times out of ten, we go, no, I don't. The newlyweds in the room, shaking. I mean, you know, yeah, learn that now. But love is a willful choice to serve. And when we are in the faith... Oh my goodness, it goes so much further, doesn't it? And see, loving is not always, it's not obligatory in the way that we like to look at it. Like obedience, we say, okay, what's the obedience to Jesus Christ? That's why it's a lot easier, let me go back to sort of where I want to segue this, it's a lot easier for us to go, you know what, God's called me to be an evangelist, I'm getting on a sailboat and I'm going somewhere in the sea and the first piece of land I find, I'm going to evangelize it. Because it's much easier to be on that trajectory than to be on this trajectory seeing you every day seeing you once a week thinking about you hearing from you always top of mind because the novelty wears off in every relationship unless we willfully choose to love Taking care of someone can be an act of love, but taking care of someone is not an act of love in and of itself. Let that sit for a second. Doing godly things and following the precepts of the Bible is obedience, I guess. But it's not real obedience unless it's done out of love. A willful desire 
So let's unpack this for a second. We are here that we may obey Christ. Now the Greek there literally says, for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. And so we have to take some time. And I may go next week. I haven't decided if I'm just going to continue in this short trajectory here or step in a mud hole for a couple of weeks and just go into Exodus and, and go into the covenant. I might. I might do it. I mean, I'm in there. I'm reading it. And I'm reminding myself of what it all says. But it might be good for us to go together. We'll see. Depends on my time. Obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Christ. The blood of Christ. That's the real subject there, right? What does it do? So, this points to a place in Scripture in Exodus chapter 24 where God confirmed the covenant with Moses and his people. The contract. And what Moses does there is he sprinkles the blood. He says, okay, we'll do everything you've told us. To do. We're going to obey you, Father. We're going to obey you, God, Lord. I don't think he called him Father at that time. We're going to obey you, Lord. So Moses sprinkled the blood on the people and said these words. This is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Paul, when he wrote to the Hebrews, he comments on the shedding blood of Jesus. He comments there that the shedding blood, the shed blood of Jesus, what? Covers our sins, forgives us of our sins, sets us right before him once and for all. Because he purchased us. He purchased us on the cross. So here in this introduction to Peter, we have to put it all together. Sometimes we just have to unpack it. And it just, it's a bigger box than what we thought. It's like throwing a gremlin in the swimming pool. I mean, you're going to have a lot of them, for those of you who've watched that movie in the 80s. It's just going to expand and expand. So let's look at two things very quickly. The Old Testament regarding obedience to Christ and the New Testament regarding obedience to Christ. It's going to be very fast, okay? And then we're going to look at Christ... We're going to look at the Bible in the context of practically applying love as, I believe, the center of obedience. Okay? That's what we're going to do. And I know we preach about this a lot. I know we talk about this a lot because it is the current of the New Testament. Beloved, it is the current of the New Testament. And it covers a multitude of sins, right? The love of God. God is love. God loves us. How do I know? He did for us. He embraced us. He condescended to us. He lent down to us. He gave himself for us. He secured us through becoming a human being to stand in the place of us. Without a complaint. I remember a season... A season. I remember my life to this point of always struggling to, uh, to put forth this stoic discipline of not complaining. I even put practices in place, spoke out loud, changed my behavior. When I thought frustrating things, because I'm persnickety, y'all, I got problems. I got problems. I'm a good punch list guy. You bring me into a situation, I will show you every problem. I got problems, I can find problems. I'd even say, okay, when I feel like I've got a problem, when I feel flustered, or not even flustered, just, you know, administratively irritated by something I see, think, or feel, or notice, then I will outwardly say something positive in a way of praise. You know what? It was just platitudes. It was just vocal platitudes when what I've learn to discover about the New Testament is the obedience to Christ handles that. Love handles that. Love helps us to reframe, in other words, what we initially think and feel in the story that we write ourselves in our mind, which is nine times out of ten a lie, 
We reframe it through the gospel. We think about it. That means we, we take this picture and we go, okay, let's look at it from this perspective. The Bible teaches us to do that. We've spent most of last year into that mindset, starting in Psalm 40 all the way into just a couple of weeks ago. <clears throat> and so we look at things differently in such a way that we may see how we can love. That we may see how we can look at things from a different perspective because of the love of God for us. So God loves us, and we know that because Christ is alive. He's raised from the dead. We see the Old Testament context of obedience to Christ. In Deuteronomy 6, the second reading of the law. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord with your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. See, obedience in the Old Testament is directly tethered to what? To the covenant between God and Israel. It's not a rule following. It's not a do this and you'll deserve it. It's a response of love and faithfulness to God's sovereign, well, God's sovereignty. So what does this mean? Well, face value, it means we have to live a life of wholehearted devotion to the Lord. There's also prophetic calls of obedience to obedience in the Old Testament. First Samuel. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold then, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen is better than the fat of rams. And I love Paul's allusion to that reality to explain it. Remember how I say it? That New Testament apostolic authority trumps Old Testament theology. It actually explains it. So without Paul and James and Peter and John we really can't see what the Old Testament was literally trying to teach. And Paul was an, a perfect example of that. Peter is an example of that, but Paul more profound as a Pharisee. So through the prophets, God continued to emphasize this, that obedience is more valuable than religion, than ritual even though there is some obedience in those things. Now we live in a New Testament era of understanding what all of those things pointed to, which all of them pointed to the love of God for his people. Now we are to love our neighbor in like manner. You know, loving your neighbor is the whole crux of Ephesians 5, 4. The marital relationship. Husbands, love your wives in the same way that Christ loved the church and in the same way that you love your own body. Holy moly. Can you even say that? How much? To, some of us go, well, I don't love myself. That's not true. I promise you, you love yourself. I don't care. Listen, I have been in dark places where I considered my whole essence, my ontological reality, void and worthless. And that's a pathetic place to be as a child of God. But I still loved myself. So much so that I would opine constantly internally about how miserable I was. We give attention to what we love the most. Even when it's dark and negative. Let me say that again. We give attention to what we love the most. And when it's our thoughts and when it's our problems, we love ourselves. Because loving is not feelings of happiness and pleasure and, 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 and security. Loving is action, focus, attention. What? The question is, are we loving God that's what the New Testament teaches us. Philippians, and being found in human form, Philippians chapter 2, he humbled himself by becoming obedient. Obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross as a criminal. So Jesus exemplifies perfect obedience. That's the whole, that's the whole matter of the contract that he, between the Father and the Son that he would 
prepare a people for himself, and in justice he would secure them through the right payment, through the right consequence, through the right sacrifice, through the right offering, Jesus became that payment. He became that, that currency. And in doing so, he did it in obedience. And there is nothing in the New Testament that shows us that Jesus wanted, enjoyed, or could hardly stand to get on the cross. It's the exact opposite. Looking beyond the cross, he despised the shame, but he looked to the glory that was his before the world began. Even prayed that to the Father. Father, now bestow upon me the glory that is due me. Show all of these people who I really am before you, even though I have in all obedience subjected myself to submission to your glory and to your name, not having taken any credit or any fame or any glory to this point now I want to be glorified as I was because it was his to claim but nevertheless he would pray your will be done after he first prayed please take this cup from me and what Jesus was facing is not like us going to get a root canal or going to have a doctor's visit and get some bad reports or having issues in relationships or financial troubles. It wasn't even like us if we were new we were dying. It's greater than that. The, the fear and the trembling and the anxiety goes beyond just the physical. You know we have a word for the pain and the suffering that comes from crucifixion called excruciating out of the cross out of crucifixion and it's the highest level of pain oh that's excruciating <coughs> we use it now when the toddlers are too loud oh this is excruciating I just love pizza see how we butcher meaning in context because context is a hundred percent of the meaning no matter what the definition is I can use any word I want in any place I want in any way I mean and you can't tell me I'm wrong because I know what I mean. You see? Now, it may be improper use. It may be ridiculous. But give it a couple of weeks. Give it a couple of centuries. I'll change the meaning. Jesus obeyed in the face of the wrath of God. Facing death that wasn't his to take. Why? Because he loved the Father. Why? Because he loved his people. How? You saw it. You saw it. And the greatest joy of obedience through love is to see the joy of others when we do it. Now we're going to get some application here because I know it's very ambiguous. When we look at the New Testament, we see Christ as the model of obedience which is what I've just said. We see obedience as an expression of faith. James chapter 2. So also faith by itself, James says, it does not have works that it does not, if it does not have works, is dead. So let's put that in the context of the New Testament teaching holistically and let's, let's understand James and his teaching. The context there that there was some animosity between these Jewish Christians. There were Christians of great there were people of, of great honor and prestige, of good social structure and status, and then there were the, you know, guys like us that just didn't have much, didn't know much, weren't really connected. And then there were people that were even below that. And people began to show favoritism and honor to the dignitaries, you know. It's always, I don't like it. I've gone to places before and traveling, you know, and they see me in the audience. Oh, Pastor Tippins, oh. Pastor Tippins, you and the first lady, y'all come sit up there on the stage while we preach, and I ain't doing that. I'm not the president. I've seen that too. I've seen dignitaries, servants of humanity, public slaves, be sat in places of honor. And that's what was happening with, with James, with the people there. And it's like, no, 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 this isn't how it works. Y'all are fighting with each other, you're frustrated with each other, you're showing favoritism. What did he say? That's not works. That's a dead faith. What's a dead faith? It's like a dead horse. 
you still got the horse, it can't work for you. It's not unto salvation, it's out of salvation. So James says, if it doesn't have works, faith is dead. But someone will say, you got faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I'll show you my faith by my works. If we believe in the gospel and we're resting in the gospel, then why, pray tell, can we not live it out? Or even simpler, why can we not receive the instruction of the Lord in his loving revelation through the Bible for us to learn how to love and to be patient and silent and put away what we think is absolute for just enough time for the Spirit of God to teach us something? No, because we think, well, if God will force me, will God force Jonah and Jonah still was miserable. And that is the spirit in which I live a lot of my days, the spirit of Jonah. I used to think it was Jeremiah, and I was just crying because I was miserable. You ever had that kind of spirit? So obedience is a, an expression of faith. So what Peter's talking about here then, based on what we've seen so far in this introduction, is that introduction of the letter, not the sermon, but is that um, obedience is more than just adherence to certain things. Do this, don't do this. Think this way, talk this way, whatever. It's not just a set of rules. It's a holistic, and I'm going to say some words that I've been saying for a while, embodied, that means in us, we are going to show and be response to the lordship, to the sovereignty, and to the love of Christ. And it encompasses belief, it encompasses trust and rest, and it encompasses an ethical living that loves people. Remember those five or six Sundays I preached on biblical compassion and empathy and have to have empathy and freedom? Because Jesus is the model of these things. We must think about these things. The problem is, if we, we, can't go, we can't continue to use English New Testament words if they have no teeth in society. So let's just use the language that we're actually using in the world in which we live. So that we understand what we're talking about. It's not psychobabble, it's Christianity. And what is philosophy but thinking about things and coming to conclusions? What is meditation except storing it away in our minds and really putting heartfelt time into consideration of something? Or nothing. Depends on what you want. Our actions, our lifestyle, our love for others is a reflection of what God has done. Not proof, not assurance, but a reflection. A reflection. And honestly, I believe that my obedience to love others, to have a genuine good about my life concerning other people, is intrinsically and divinely linked to my identity and my Savior. I've always used the expression that my grandmother always said, it's, you need to remember whose you are. Well, in order to do that, I need to remember that I'm called to love my neighbor. And that is obedience to Christ. And no matter what else I do, no matter what I don't do, no matter what I put forth, no matter how I may mold myself into whatever the culture has decided should be pure, if I'm not loving my neighbor, I am dirty. But as children who are adopted in Christ, we, even when that might be true for us this moment, cannot live in the guilt and the shame and the condemnation that our minds give us when we think about that. For we are not condemned. Isn't that the craziest dichotomy in the world? That we literally can be fighting against the grains of goodness Kicking against the goads. We can fight against the righteousness of God. We've got our finger in the face of God through our attitudes. And all the well, 
just absolutely be guilty of insurrection and rebellion, yet we are not guilty of insurrection and rebellion, for Christ stood in our place in our guilt, and God's justice is satisfied. No wonder the world thinks we're insane. That's ridiculous, but it's absolutely beautiful. But we never get that, and it's not a balance. It's a full meal. It's not about, oh, we got to preach the balance. Condemnation, regeneration. Blah, blah. No. no. <coughs> God's mercy is all about justice, and justice is satisfied. That is the good report. And from there, we can go, wait a minute. This is the love of God for me. He chooses to love me eternally in every single moment of my life. He proved this to me. I can love somebody. I can love me. Why? What have you ever done to be deserving of love? I can love me because God loves me. I don't even have to go anywhere, but there. And if that's true, what can I do for you? Christ is this model, but he's also the motivation for obedience. It's not legalistic, but an absolute overflow, a response to the grace received through the life and death of Christ. I read through, some, I read through chapter 2 last week of 1 Peter. It gives us all of these things. And Peter tells us, and will show us as we'll see, is that our obedience in love, motivated by love, is a key aspect to our Christian witness. Peter even says that our ethical, compassionate, loving resolve will attract people to the message that we have. Think about that for a second. That they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Chapter 2, verse 12, somewhere in there, I can't find it. And then after Peter gives that broad instruction, that application, he starts to delve into the picture of the gospel through husband and wife, and I'm going to tell you, when we get there, I'm going to probably spend 12 to 16 weeks in that chapter, first seven verses of chapter 3, because I'm going to expand some things holistically from the Bible that need correcting. And I've avoided trying to knee-jerk throw all this stuff out because it's often very misappropriated when I'm too quick to share what I've learned. So some practical applications before we get to some theological implications and then some changes that could happen. What do we do? Paul in Romans 1 verse 5 talks about the obedience of faith. So that connecting that even obeying by believing is, is an act of obedience and that is something that God grants us. Faith is a gift that God gives us <coughs> and just put that in there somewhere. We're not in Romans right now, but I preached through Romans some years ago, and I think I want to go back and do this again with a little more cohesiveness. John 14, 15, If you love me, you will obey my commands, Jesus says. The term for obedience in the Greek in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2, connotates this idea of listening well. Are you listening? Remember that podcast? <laughs> but it's listening that leads to response. James talks about it, right? Don't be just hearers, but be doers. Listen. So there is a response 
and active obedience for the Christian. In what areas? A bunch of areas. Let's bullet down to four. What areas of our life? So where am I supposed? What am I supposed to be doing? I'm going to go home. I got to obey. How am I supposed? How am I supposed to clean my dishes? How am I supposed to put on my shoes? What brand of shoes can I wear, folks? I still get questions. By the way, we don't do theology on call, but I still get questions. Dozens of questions every week, and I answer one of them privately. Sometimes you'll see me post this random stuff on my blog. Where did that come from? Somebody asked me a question. When I answer it, I'm going to publish it. But most of the questions are these really hard things that people are like, what am I supposed to do? Am I honoring God by wearing a gold ring? My grandpa said I should have got stainless steel rings because gold is pretentious. Young girls who go to a summer camp and they come back and say, well, I'm not supposed to wear a braid. Am I supposed to, should I cut off all my hair? Oh, I had a terrible thought. Pastor Tippins, can you help me know that if I'm lost because I had a terrible thought, because my pastor told me if that was in my heart, I probably wasn't filled with the Spirit. And it's so hard for me, the way I am right now, I'm like, well, your pastor's a dumb butt. He's silly. I said a bad word last week, so I don't want to say it again. Didn't I, Ellie? <laughs> she called me on it. I don't want to be silly like that. And so a lot of people are like, what am I supposed to do? But there is some application. There is some application when it comes to loving to obedience. I mean, personal and communal ethics. There's an issue that emphasizes the importance of our personal maturity and our personal separation from certain things that the world says and does. And that is a personal decision. Some people can't watch certain things. And I'm not saying that it's beneficial to watch certain things. I mean, I tell you, I, I, right now, <clears throat> I spend a whole lot of time wasted in certain aspects of my week. Because I'm, I'm so busy. I'm very, very busy. So I find this, like, dumb. Where did the hour go? What did I just look at? What am I doing? My brain's on fire. So, yes, there are some prudent ways, but I'm not going to tie that to a place of guilt because I could have spent that hour parsing Greek. I, you know, or burning incense. Or I could have also spent that hour napping or playing with my dog. Or talking with my family. So there's always going to be a payoff. There's always going to be something more that we could do. And we know the things that control us. But there's an issue that needs to be always top of mind for us. Is that we need to reflect on how our daily choices and interactions demonstrate our love for the Lord. Not how the culture and history has taught us. But how our personal experience in growing and resting is. And we respond to that in kind because of the love of God for us, not out of guilt. And maybe I should teach about that, but I'm still trying to unpack that for myself. I am learning, I've written a lot this week in my journals about forgiving myself. Never realized that I wasn't forgiving myself. But there's always a kick in the butt in your own brain about what you wish you could do better. Well, I can't believe I did that. You're not forgiving yourself. You are bound by that unforgiveness. So we've got personal application of obeying Christ in our, in our ethics, in our goodness, in our community, and then personally. And then also the big one that I always that I ended up with last week that I, I, I'm like, wow, that was really melancholy. But suffering and perseverance. I left the perseverance part out, you know, because the time was up. But suffering, I mean, we're going to suffer, and so obedience to Christ encourages believers to look at these sufferings. We talked about it last week. If you didn't hear the sermon, you can listen to it, or you can read the Bible, and God will show it to you. But these suffering is opportunities to demonstrate, to demonstrate obedience, to deepen our faith. And let me tell you what obedience looks like in suffering as one of your pastors. It is an absolute nightmare. Seven days in the week I might obey one. 
when you're in suffering mode. I might get one good 10-minute spiel out of a 168-hour week. Beloved, it is a trial by fire. If you think I wake up every day floating on the Word of God, I would say I'd put a camera in my house. You don't want to see that. You don't want to be disillusioned. But I'm a human being. I'm a man. And all the bad stuff that comes with those two things is me. And the greatest part about it is that it's okay. It's okay. It's okay for you to be human. It's okay for you to be honest. Because you're not going to ever be perfect. And even when you are, something's going to happen with your body, your mind, or a relationship is going to throw it right out the window. The third area of application is evangelism. I broached the, the subject, right? We need to obey in evangelism. We need to share. But what does that look like? And I've even made plugs, right? And they've been pejorative. I'm sorry. I've upset some people. And I've hurt some, of, some people. I've hurt some of you. Because my humor is highly sarcastic. Sarcasm is, a, sarcasm is a way of saying pointed mean things. And saying, I'm just joking. You know. And it's, it's not something I should engage in here. But it's so habitual, it just comes natural. It's like alliteration. If I could do sarcastic alliteration, oh my goodness. So here we go. Mission and evangelism. I've plugged it. We need to have some conversations about what that looks like for the common person. For the not full time out there, not on furlough. Thank God for them. But I mean, it's an integral part of the Christian witness. Obedience. How do we engage in the world? How do we engage in justice? How do we engage in society? How do we engage with compassion? It's all about the evangel, right? Ultimately, the message of Christ, the message of the cross, the message of the love of God. Where is it? But you know what I've found in these things? A lot of times that obedience in that context is typically just doing the same rote thing, looking for the same rote output and then telling people now change this about yourself and you will be right with God and that's that's a lie it's a lie obedience also forms us spiritually the last thing forms us spiritually in, in what ways well we grow put away all malice we grow a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And the more that we stand in our love for others, the greater it is for us to stand in the resolve of God's love for us. And the more we stand in our understanding of the love of God for us, the more than we can stand in the resolve to love others. And you know what's crazy about it? Is that in this way of obeying the Lord... I think it will help us to be less judgmental. Not about others, but about us. I think it will help us to literally be free. I'm not going to have time to go through all the other things that I want to talk about today, so we'll pick it up next week in part two, but I have to close with, with this idea. Is that obedience has a motivation. I've already said this. I just want to make sure that it's clear for us. And that motivation is either external or internal. Extrinsic, extrinsic or intrinsic. From within, from without. So in our minds, in our thoughts, obedience that stems from the internal, from our understanding, from our trust, from our beliefs, is incredibly more authentic. But obedience that stems from external pressure becomes obligatory chore. And honestly, 
when there is an external pressure to obey, that obedience is never good enough. Because if you, have you ever had a relationship in your spiritual journey as a Christian in the church where somebody brings something to your attention and it's actually good and prudent and they're like, wow, this is, thank you so much for helping me. And they help you through whatever this might be, a little problem, little sin, little frustration, little thing, little thing about your attitude or your character. And then you get through it and you've overcome it. And then months later, it's like, wow, you're walking on sunshine. Everything is good. And they say, well, now that you got that out of the way, I've noticed something else. <laughs> these little spiritual narcs, these theology watchdogs, these, you know, uh, church police, thought police, gatekeepers. You never escape it. So if we're trying to mold ourselves into obeying the Lord so that pastor will see me or my spouse will see me or I want people to see that I'm good. I want, to, I want the world to know that I'm a Christian. No. It must come from the transformative power of the love of God resting deep inside of you. <coughs> That's why Peter says it this way. In verse 6, all the salvation that he's given God praise for, this living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, this absolute suffering that these people are experiencing, but one day, through God's power, it's going to be revealed to them, their salvation. And he says in verse 6 of chapter 1, In this you rejoice, now for a little while, if necessary, you will be grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, which is more precious than gold that perishes through though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not now see him, you believe in him. And here's the key. And rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So see, the intrinsic power of God's love for us comes from within that we overflow with rejoicing. We overflow in the midst of all of these dark things and it doesn't change the external circumstances sometimes. And oftentimes these things are inexpressible. Beloved, do not let your Christian obedience be motivated by what somebody else may say or think. I don't know how I'm going to coach you into that because I'm not a therapist. But I do know what I can teach you from the Word of God about your identity. And I think that's where it starts. But hearing me preach next week about that is not going to establish a security in you. It's not going to establish a foundation that you just, oh, I heard it, now I know it, I'm good. It's going to take a lot of practice. It's going to take a lot of practice. But this obedience does not earn God's favor. So if it doesn't earn God's favor, why in the world would I try to obey to earn yours? Just hear that. There's like 20 minutes there, but that's enough. Why would I do that? My obedience is a fruit of my salvation. And it's wanting in every breath. And my obedience is a power of my Christian freedom. It's not restrictive. It's liberating. It frees us from the burden of rule following, of getting it right, of putting on airs, of standing before others in a way that they want us to be. It enables us to live in the freedom of the grace of God. By, for freedom you have been set free. Galatians 5. So walk in that freedom. Walk in that freedom. And I pray that this, will be a, this would be the stepping stone. One, the first level of an incredible journey that we will walk together in so that we may grow into rejoicing in the grace of God. Beloved, it's going to feel sticky. It's going to feel vulnerable. It's going to feel hard.
we got to lean into that feeling of discomfort. I'm going to say it again. we got to lean into that feeling of discomfort because if you can't lean into the feeling of discomfort, you can't grow beyond where you are right now in anything, especially your faith. I'm walking it, and I'm going to walk with you in it. For the sake of the name of Christ, we're going to do it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the love that you've given us. Lord, for all the things that you teach us in your word. Lord, that my words would be true because they come from your word. And Lord, when they are not, your word surpasses them. Father, help us to not depend on the preaching or the preacher to change our lives. But Lord, help us to rest internally in the power of your spirit and the power of the resurrection, and the power of your promises, and the power of your purposes and your love for us, that we may become a transformed people for the joy of each other. Well, we can't change what has been done in our lives, but we can rejoice in spite of it. So, Lord, help us to grow intimate, intimately, vulnerably, and authentically in such a way that we begin to know each other as we learn to know you more. Because it is the heartbeat of the gospel is that you know us and we know you. And we thank you for that. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Let's take the table together, beloved.